This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever it is that you're streaming. Uh, we are broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Big thanks to Fee for the last three hours of maps. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined in the studio tonight by Will Cox. Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Good, you know. I can't complain. <laughs> But you will. <laughs> oh, go on. Give me a minute. No, I'm fine. Well, on tonight's show, we're, we're going to be reviewing some new releases. Uh, first up, I'm going to share my chat with the legendary director, Warwick Thornton, about his latest film, The New Boy. Then we'll turn back time with an extremely de-aged Harrison Ford for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And finally, we'll wrap up the hour with Tina Satter's... Triple R. An Aboriginal child arrives in the dead of night at a remote monastery run by a renegade nun. The new boy's presence disturbs a delicately balanced world in this story of spiritual struggle and the cost of survival. The New Boy is the latest film by director Warwick Thornton and I had the pleasure of speaking with him on Friday um, about this film and about his work more generally. Um, it is NAIDOC week and we did touch upon that as well as um, Warwick's involvement with the um, yes vote. And, um, yeah, I feel like this is this is a director who we have done a, sp- a spotlight on before. He's one of my favourite directors. Um, listeners will have likely have seen his six-part TV series, The Beach, uh, Sweet Country, um, Samson and Delilah. He is such a remarkable filmmaker. And uh, there was a fantastic quote by Kate Blanchett that we shared on the socials, um, basically saying that Warwick Thornton is one of Australia's greats. And I, I couldn't agree with her more. Um, I really hope that you enjoy um, my chat. To the Aboriginal protector... Mr. Crank. I am writing regarding the progress of the new boy you sent us. After a shaky start, he is learning to read and to write. He has a passion for Christ and I feel that he may even follow in my footsteps. So your new film, The New Boy, 18 years in the making, you've said of the film that this one is a really special one and it's got a lot to say. Why is it such a special film for you? It's like this is my most important album yet and I think <laughs> every, every band says that. <laughs> like, and, you know. And the longer it takes, the more important it is. Um, you know, the irony of it took so long because it wasn't written very well. You know, <laughs> people were reading it and they were going, yeah, it's a great idea, Warwick. But, you know, it's a shit script. The arc's a bit ass up. And, you know, who's the protagonist and what's an antagonist? You know, all that kind of stuff. So the truth of the matter is it did take a long time, but it, um, it took a long time because it probably wasn't written very well. And it took, like, to meet Kate properly and for COVID sadly to happen and for both of us to freak out that, um, you know, she said to me, life's too short, Warwick, we need to make a movie together. You know, she's stuck in a castle in London, uh, in England and, um, you know, I'm in a, a, you know, a single bedroom flat in Annandale in Sydney and it's like, hell yeah, let's bring it on. You know, so <laughs> it took her to, 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 you know, and we talked about maybe writing a, a you know, a, brand new secondhand fresh piece of fiction to to work together with but that's kind of a three four year process for me to do that kind of writing thankfully i remembered i had that script in the bottom drawer and um i got her to read it and she loved it and that's where we started 
Well, it's so interesting having a piece of work that has been in your life for for that amount of time. I I read in an interview that you said, I wrote it as a child and directed it as a grumpy old man. Now, I don't think you're an old man by any means. But there is both a young child, you know, the new boy, and a grumpy man, George, in your film. Do you think that working on this story for very different times in your life allowed for these two characters to come to life? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, if I if I if, if I got it up when I first wrote it, I think it'd probably be a terrible film. I needed to live. You know what I mean? I needed to fall in love a couple more times. I needed to um, be told I don't love you anymore a couple of times. And, you know, those beautiful things that happen in life that can help you. Um, um, Thing emotions, you know, keep keep control, and you know, I just needed to be older and, and grow up, you know, and live to, mm. to be able to do it. And I think I'm, I'm in a, I'm you know now I'm in a better place to direct something like this film, you know. Mm. Something like Samson Delilah was at the right time and the right place because I was quite young when I made that, but it was about young people and you know on the streets of Alice Springs, and I was a young person on the streets of Alice Springs, so it kind of. I was the right person to make that film at that time, but I don't think I was the right person to make this film at that time. So it did take, you know, the universe was going, no, you're not directing this yet. It's it's a crap script um, and you need to rewrite it and you need to grow up. Mm. Well, you've definitely created a a masterful film with the new boy. At the centre of your film, there is a young boy, a newcomer, Aswan Reid. I understand that the audition tape for the role was just him dancing in the desert. And we see some of that dancing in the film. First film, and he's in the lead. How did you prepare Aswan for the role? It's positive affirmation and empowerment. You know what I mean? It's it's about, I, I you know, I do not understand actors. I just think they're the most freakiest beast in the world. There was a point in all actors' lives when they looked in the mirror and said, yeah, I've got the face and the chops to stand in front of the camera, you know, and I, I just don't know. I just, they just freak me out. I mean, why the hell would you want to stand in front of the camera, you idiot? Um, whereas, you know, it's so much more safer and nurturing behind the camera, you know, where you, you can pick your nose and, you know, do things. Well, they're not allowed to do that, you know. So it's, it, but, so, you know, for a, for a, for a young child, never been on a film before, who so has never witnessed how a set works and got a ridiculously long hours and the, the, the amount of um, pressure that an actor goes on un- is under for just so just for that split second of that performance but the build up to that had they as one had no idea about that, mm-hmm. you know? And there could have been a point on the first day where oh, I don't like this. This is too hard. Mm. I'm not going to do this ever again. I don't want to do this. Actually, I don't want to be in this film. Bye. I'm going back to Kirikura, the community I come from. So it's about banking and empowering and nurturing and making sure that they feel so comfortable in front of that camera. Mm. And, and, and you know, I see the way I... The way I work is if I'm writing a character who's a, who's a young child, I'm not going to, and I pretty well know that I'm going to cast from a community. And if I'm going to cast from the community, that, that child probably has never acted before. Why would I write a three-page monologue for them? That's mm. just That would be madness for me to do that. And that would set them up to fail and it would set the film up and the story up to fail and... It was so disempowered them, you know, trying to remember that many lines that I actually be in character and do those lines. Um, it would set them up to fail. And I would have a child saying, I don't want to do this anymore. So, you know, you build a film around knowing that you're going to get a first-time actor and you, you get rid of the dialogue and use physicality and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the emotion is on their face, not them saying I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm happy. They they know they know how to play happy. They you know all humans know how to play happy, sad, or angry, and just make it up on the spot. You know, so just write something that's conformingly comfortable for all of the, the, the 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 for a, a child to actually play that character. Mm. Really, 
And you know, I did. I remember. I remember. And so the the importance of the the more importance of casting someone like Hath one it's the actual visual what they visually look like because that can say so much. And I remember seeing that you know the shaky iPhone stuff in in the middle of the bush of him. He was just walking down. He was just walking down a dirt road. No, no shoes, no shirt. This crazy lock of blonde hair, and I just went, "Oh my God, who is this? Who is this?" And I couldn't see his face because it was just the back of his head walking, you know. And that massive presence that he had just on an iPhone was just hooked me straight away. And I'm like, "I got to see his face. I got to see his face." And because whatever's happening from the back of his head is perfect, you know. <laughs> so, you know that. You, you you feel that and you see that and that's kind of important to recognise when you're um, casting. Ooh, he's such a talent. Like you say, his physicality, his expression is amazing. I'm very excited to see where Aswan goes next. Well, um, you know, we, I, 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 I've said it before, but there's this really beautiful thing. That, you know, we we sadly lost Gulp a little, but we found Aswan. You know what I mean? And I, he wants to make more movies. He was he was very happy with you know. How sets of how movies are made, you know what I mean. So hopefully he's got a, he'll have a he will have a career in this, you know, until he's a very old man if he wants. Yeah, that's a lovely legacy to refer to as well. Gulflil, of course, was discovered when he was about fifteen or sixteen, I think. Yeah, yeah, walkabout. Yeah, yeah. I understand that an early working uh, title of the script was Father and Son. Yeah. Um. And the task of raising a child and how best to guide them through life and the challenges they're going to face seems to be at the core of the new boy. George acts like something of a stand-in father to the boys. There's the absent father whose disappearance sister Eileen is hiding. Uh, And then Jesus himself on the crucifix. Um, You're a father yourself. How much did your experience of parenthood lend itself to the story? I don't know. That's a damn good, no, I don't, I don't even answer. I don't, you know, I'm still a parent um, and I'm still making it up every day with my children in a way, you know, I, I guess, you know, the, as, 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 as I, I, I never had a father. My father died when I was one, so I never knew him and uh, the, the, always been absent. So I think, I, I think the only way I can talk to my children is, is that, positive a- affirmation that they're about to stand in front of the camera and they can do it and they're amazing and, you know, and then incredibly special, the same way I talk to Aswan on set, you know what I mean? Just, sadly, I'm not directing my children, but it's, you know, all the, all the things you'd want from a father that I never had, I try and give to my children, but I'm still just making it up on the spot, you know what I mean? It's, it, there's, there's no rules. There's no rules and, you know, I, I fall off the fatherly perch quite often, you know what I mean, and embarrass my children. But I try and make it, I try and make life exciting for them, you know. Well, you worked with your son, Dylan, of course, with the six-part TV series, The Beach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I understand your daughter is, is in acting as well. Yeah, Luca's in acting. Rona's a DJ who runs an amazing company called Common Ground. Um, yeah, they're all, they're all high, high um, achievers in their way. Um, I try and be the low achiever in, in the family, you know. <laughs> So the new boy is set in a remote monastery in the 1940s in Australia. Um, it's a mission for Aboriginal ch- children that are it's run by this renegade nun, Sister Eileen, played by Kate Blanchett. Um, the I story- love that word, renegade nun. Uh, you know, she's, got, yeah. she's got a cigar, she's got a scar, a bottle of whiskey, and a machine gun. You know, <laughs> it's sort of like it's sort of kind of stuff. <laughs> Perfectly, perfect casting for for Kate, really. Um, <laughs> I understand that it's it's somewhat inspired by your own experience of being sent off to the new Norsi Commission when you were a teen. Yeah, it, it is. You know, there's a bit of Aswan in me and a, and a bit of me in Aswan, or not Aswan, your new boy. Um, the good thing is, you know, it's sort of I, I never had a problem when I went to went to boarding school, and you know, this isn't a dark film. It, it is a really dark film, but it's not about what you think would happen at the boarding school. It's, you know, I, I find that not important at the moment. You know what I mean? Somewhere like, um, you know, the can- Canadians have, you know, we, we, actually there's some really bad shit happened at boarding schools, not just Indigenous ones, but, you know what I mean, all that kind of stuff. But this is a very different kind of film to that. And 
I, I wanted to make a film about survival, like Sister Eileen surviving, and that's why she's a renegade nun. George is surviving. The new boy rocks up. He's he's trying to survive. Jesus is trying to survive in a way. And, you know, actually, who is the new boy? Is Jesus the new boy or is um, Aswan's character the new boy? I don't know. There's mm-hmm. lots of wonderful things happening. But it really is a film about survival and bad people being good and good people being bad, you know, and but not understanding where they are in, you know, just trying to survive. You know, Sister Eileen really is a fascinatingly complex character. Was she based at all on a person in your life that you met at the mission or, or was she more of a composite of, of characters? No, she, she's, I, I, you know what, in a strange way, she's what I've always wanted a nun to be. You know what I mean? A bit of rock and roll. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. A bit of sort of like, yeah, kids, you know, I, I did drugs when I was young, you know. You know, I burned down the convert. Hey, you know, we were, we're all kicking against the pricks. <laughs> you know, it, so she's kind of cool. You know, I write her to be cool, uh, but naive, and mm-hmm. and and because of that naivety and that sort of you know, that that sort of absolute connection to faith and being blinkered by faith, then suddenly becoming quite dangerous. Mm, you know? Yes, there's a really interesting parallel that could be made between Sister Eileen's faith and the spark that keeps New Boy going. How would you describe your relationship to religion? Um. I, I, I think there's room for all of them, and I think we all should believe in something a bit more than just, you know, when the, when the brain stops sparking, there's nothing. I think it's a bit sad. Um, so I've, you know, I've 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 got a lot of friends who've died, and I'm still waiting for them to, you know, be at the edge of my bed in the middle of the night and go, hey. Sorry it's taken this long, but, yeah, I'm on the other side. It's all, you know, I've been busy on the other side, you know, having a great old time, whether it's Christian versions of heaven or, you know, the you know the dream time, which is a terrible word, but, you know, whatever it is that you, you're looking for, you know, I, I, I want it. I want it, I, I, you know. And um, they, they, never, they, never, they never wake me up in the middle of the night sitting on the edge of the bed, but one day they will. I hope they will. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the snake is a really interesting uh, figure in this film, and I thought about the way in which it has such a different connotation in Catholicism to um, a lot of Indigenous beliefs and spirits. Yeah, well, you know, you know, but you know, we have rainbow serpents uh, that are that are big time creators of a lot of stuff in different different communities. You know, you know, there's so many different versions of, of spirituality and religion in, in just in, in Australia, just through Indigenous tribes and communities. And but so many different creators, and you know, in the Christian world, it's obviously you know, it's 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 the thing that tempted poor old you know, um, what's her name with the apple and gave them knowledge and then wrecked everything. Yeah, Adam and, and Eve. Yeah, Adam and Eve. You know what I mean? Proud Eve. You know. <laughs> She got blamed for everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and this kid plays, plays. He, he has no fear of snakes and he hangs around snakes and maybe he, he has some, he gets knowledge off them. I don't know. There's all sorts of, you could write, you could get a good, good old thick doctorate out of this movie if you, <laughs> if you wanted to. And a lot of it could be, you know, stuff that I haven't even thought of, but just visually how you would recognize it in your life mm-hmm. in film and, you know, um, references to Christianity or spirituality or it's rife with it. Mm. A lot of it, I, I, I don't even know. It's just there. Yeah. So, well, yeah. For listeners who have just tuned in, I'm chatting with the director of The New Boy. During the press circuit with Wayne Blair for the Mystery Road TV series, there was an ongoing gag about you never casting Wayne in any of your films. You finally yeah. cast him. Was it strange to be directing a fellow director? Yes, it was. It was. But we we just we just giggle like children on set, and we we try and try and act serious when Kate rocks up. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, in a, in a good way. You know, it's, it's he he'd known about this even before Kate was cast. He was cast in this film. So was Deb. I told mm-hmm. them about the script. They hadn't read it, but I said, "I've got this movie. I want you two to be in it." And they're like, "Bring it on. We don't care. We don't care. We don't care." Uh- Deb yeah. Malin as Sister Mum, uh, she's amazing. There is so much, so much communicated in her face. And I love this about the new boy. There is so much in the silences 
that is being said. There is the something about the unspeakable to this film that's being communicated in those pauses. Yeah. And they create questions. You know, yeah. you, you walk into a room and, and you say, I'm angry. Well, there's no question in that. Where if you walk in the room and you, you know, kick the chair over, so like, well, why'd you do that? Oh, you must be. So you, you as an audience member, you, you, you're working with the film and you're working in the film yourself rather than you're just sitting there dribbling. You know, you've got dribble coming out of one side and you're trying to feed popcorn in the other side and you just don't care because everything's explained to you. I make films that have questions rather than answers. And yeah. uh, I love that as a as a, an, an MO to a filmmaking. I know that many listeners who are going to be tuning in to, to our chat want to know what advice you would give to emerging filmmakers. Just keep going. Keep doing it. You know what I mean? Um, I have a saying that it's, it's a rule that I break every time because I'm an idiot and I forget <laughs> a lot. And it's, be careful what you write because you just might have to make it. Be careful what you make because you just might have to talk about it. <laughs> I mean? And it's kind of, you know, I, I was in a very fortunate, it's, it's, it's much tougher for filmmakers, you know, younger emerging filmmakers now than what it was when I emerged, at, if, if you know, in the early 90s. Um, I was very lucky that, you know, there was being Indigenous and um, starting to write short Indigenous films, there was, there was none out there and there was an absolute hunger for it. So, you know, I, you really got pushed forward to the front of the, the queue for festivals, um, you know, to look at your movies, that sort of stuff. And now there's a lot of Indigenous filmmakers out there. And there's a new generation who've got different, a different point of view on being black, you know what I mean? Uh, they, well, you know, a new generation of filmmakers have got different issues that they need to talk about that are not issues that I grew up with or issues that I actually do want to talk about. And the, the, the world is very fogged up with information, you know what I mean, and, and stories and, and desperation to be... Um, heard just much. It's just got to be tough, and just get get start small. Be really confident. You know, it's a craft. Needs to be learnt. Um, I don't think there's any geniuses, you know, child geniuses in this industry. We 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 all start off emulating other people, and there's no problem with that because if you make enough films and you're emulating your heroes, which is what I did. Um, when I started off, you'll suddenly slowly start finding your own voice and then suddenly a unique voice and a unique storyteller will come out of mm. out of you. But it's about just getting getting as much, making as much as possible, um, which is incredibly difficult, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and be strong, you know what I mean? Um, each generation has a different voice and a different and, – and different issues that, that are actually more important to them than the generation before and – that's your uniqueness and that's what you need to focus on is those special things that are happening to you that didn't happen to a grumpy old bastard called Warwick Thornton, you know, <laughs> right? because of the way, the way the world works. And that makes you unique and that makes you, your storytelling, just as important as anything that I'm saying. Throughout your filmography, and it's, it's actually really hard to capture your filmography because I feel like you've gone through so many different genres of work. But at the core, it always seems to be a very personal story, that a uh, personal yeah. experience that you're drawing upon. I'm thinking a lot about everything that's going on at the moment with the vote and obviously with um, NADOC week coming up. Mm. You know, the emotional labour that's required when you, you step into these stories, uh, do you ever find it exhausting? Yeah, totally, totally. Fiction's... Fiction is a bit easier because you kind of you, you you do dwell upon your your inner experiences. You know, I think ninety nine point nine percent of all of us, when we make our first short film, it's about our grandparents because it's something so personal yeah. and it's something that we can hold on to and we can be we can we have control over. You know, or it's 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 about our family in some sense. You know, our short films because it's it's a safe place, but it's a and, but it's a it's a dangerous place because you you are playing with your your family's voice in a way, but we all think we're, we're the best filmmakers. We're going to be the best filmmakers in the world, so we'll take on the hardest thing, which is our family, right from the beginning in a you know, five to ten minute short film. Great place because it's a great learning curve because it'll hurt you, you know, because it becomes really personal. Something like The Beach, making The Beach really was exhausting to me. Uh, you know, be careful what you write because you might have to make it and be careful what you make because you might have to talk about it because that was just me. There's nothing fiction, fictional in that. You know what I mean? It's just, 
the roar of point of, you know, the old overgrown gnome who lives in a shack, you know, that kind of me just spilling my guts and that really, really was taxing. But something like this, the new boy, I can, I can, it, it's drawn from me, but I sort of put it out there as a cloud and it's not attached to me anymore and then it sort of wanders off and then the the audience watch it and it becomes their cloud and they can take it home or they, you know what I mean? Mm. Or they can, you know, turn the air conditioner on in the car and get rid of it on, the, on you know, as they leave the cinema. You know what I mean? It's, it, it, it it's theirs now and I can, I, I can detach myself from it or something mm. like the bit. So it's, fiction's a great place to be able to, Draw, draw upon life experiences, but actually all care, no responsibility in this country. There is definitely a beautiful spark at the centre of The New Boy. I It has got under my skin and I think it's one of the best films I've seen this year, without a doubt. I um, was really moved by this. Warwick, I know you're on the press circuit for this film, but what's next in the pipeline for you? I'm actually going to direct the, um, the ad campaign for The Voice. Oh, amazing. I'm really excited about you know what I mean? It's the way you pull your finger out of your ass, Warwick. This is what you actually think you're good at. So can you help do your little part to get the world, to, to get this country to say yes? Excellent. You know, let's get the country to say yes and then we can say thank you. You know, it's going to be a beautiful thing. I've got that. I just wrote it. I just finished the script. Um, another one of those wonderful moments where, you know, meeting uh, Nicole Kidman and then having a couple of wines with her and then deciding, I'm going to write you a script, Nicole. And... <laughs> And she said, oh, yeah, that'd, that'd be great, Warwick. Um, <laughs> and so I did, and I just delivered a second draft. She hasn't called me back. Um, <laughs> you know, I shit. But, yeah. you know, so it's bad, you know, sort of, yeah, it's a very exciting time. Oh, absolute honour to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time, Warwick. No way. Good night, sis. Kate Blanchett returns to Australian cinema in the latest film from award-winning director Warwick Thornton, The New Boy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I'm Warwick Thornton and you're listening to Primal Screen on 3 Triple R. You are indeed listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. With... That little woo thing. <laughs> So sweet. Uh, that was Warwick Thornton. Um, it was a huge life goal unlocked being able to chat with Warwick. I've loved his work for a very long time and he's just so generous with his time. He's truly an exceptional filmmaker. I cannot recommend uh, The New Boy enough. Um, just a film that, like I said, it really did get under my skin. It stayed with me for a long time. It is going to be released in cinemas nationwide this Thursday and I highly recommend uh, listeners to check it out. Um, well, changing tack uh, <laughs> dramatically, Indiana Jones, the uh, whip-cracking professor of archaeology slash action hero, came onto our screens back in 1980 with Raiders of the Lost Ark, and in 1984, there was a prequel, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. In 1989, we had a sequel, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and a fourth film in 2008, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And now, here we are in 2023, and we have a fifth and final, apparently, uh, film in the indie canon, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Uh, here's a little clip. No? My memory's a little fuzzy, but your face rings a bell. Are you still a Nazi? <laughs> You're confused. My name is Schmidt. Professor Schmidt of Alabama University. Professor Schmidt. 170. You should have stayed in New York. 170. You should have stayed out of Poland. 170. Anyone? Anyone? Going! Going! Gone! That was indeed uh, Harrison Ford, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and wonderful Maz Mickelson. Um, Will, um, you know, I'm not sure what your background or your, your fandom of the, the indie saga is. I was 
basically brought up on watching Indiana I Jones. I was brought up <laughs> on uh, the first three. Well, obviously yes. the first three. Yes. Um, and I, I can't remember a weekend that uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade wasn't on the oh, television. That's so true. It was, it was constantly on. So I, they are baked into me. <laughs> Uh, I've seen them so many times. The fourth one I have seen once, which I thought was fine. I didn't hate it as much as everybody else did. People do hate that one. I I actually haven't seen it. I maybe because everyone was hating on it. Um, But yeah, same, same. I I, I feel like I've watched those, those first ones so many times. Um, The series was of course created by George Lucas and um, has Harrison Ford in the titular role of Indiana Jones. Um, And the first four films have been directed by Steven Spielberg, but this fifth film is directed by James Mangold, who people may um, know as the director of Logan. Um, the and Girl Interrupted. Of... Yeah, yeah. Wow, I didn't... <laughs> it's such a funny combo. I was like, where else have I heard it? Oh, my God, Girl Interrupted. Both kind of much grittier than Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Um, it's an interesting one. Uh, we've got uh, John Rhys-Davies and Karen Allen reprising their roles from the previous films. Uh, we've also got, like I said, the magical Phoebe Waller-Bridge as uh, Indy's goddaughter, Helena. Uh, Antonio Banderas, Toby Jones. um, Yeah, lots of – and Maz Mikkelsen, as I said before. Excellent cast. Yes. Um, Will, we both uh, saw this very recently because it's just come out. What what, what were your thoughts? I had had an excellent time. I had a lovely, (laughs) fun time at the cinema. Yes. Right? And I don't do that much because I feel like usually I go and see (laughs) – an extremely intense Dutch drama about, um, you know... An orphan. An, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you and, and me or, both. <laughs> or I go and see a big franchise thing that I mm. think is terrible. Yeah. Um, and this was not terrible. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a problem with it. Uh, <laughs> I that, just, that'll be the headline we go with. Will I just, Cox didn't have a problem with it. I Indy. just really enjoyed it. I just had a lot of fun. And I, I don't think it's getting um, – I, I think a lot of reviewers are just like, oh, God, here we go again, you know, like – but I just think it's very fun and it's yeah. doing exactly what it needs to do. James Mangold is very good at this, I think. Logan, he was very – is fantastic. Oh, I love Logan. I think it's an excellent film. Actually, you know, I haven't watched Girl Interrupted for a long time but I don't remember hating it. I think I got into it um, from memory. I was a young younger person then. <laughs> makes films that we don't hate. Yeah. Um, and I think um, this is he's, – he's showing that – he's shown with Logan and with this that he can take something that, um, you know, maybe is a bit tired in the wrong hands and not revamp it but just give it breathe some it life huge. into it. And, and, and this is, it's, I mean, right down to the fonts they use in the credits, this is the same as all the others. This is part of yeah. a, a long saga, like Star Wars, say. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it fits perfectly, but it's, it still feels fresh and it feels like a lot of fun. I really liked it. Yeah, and I think fun is exactly the descriptor I would also use. Uh, it, it just is a, an enjoyable film, and I know that sounds really boring uh, – observation to make but sometimes they're not good and you think they've got all the elements for this just to be a fun action and somehow those films don't pull it off i i actually was surprised by how much the dial of destiny it's got a good pace to it it's got interesting dialogue um i think having the injection of phoebe waller bridge who listeners will know from fleabag uh she's a great addition um as is you know antonio banderas there's all these side characters that pop up characters that you know from the other series um other films in the series I think it works really well. And, you know, a lot has been said about the de-aging AI technology. Right. Um, my feeling was that it worked fine. One thing I did have a criticism of it was when I was looking through to pull a still to use in our socials this week, I hadn't seen the film yet and I was looking at a an image of Harrison Ford and Phoebe Waller-Bridge and I just thought to myself, oh, that's that's um, must be like from something else because it's not how either of them look (laughs) Um, it just didn't look like a crisp image and I was like oh this is obviously not from the film Um, just her face was a little bit blurry Uh, and then when I watched the film I realized no that is a still from the film Uh, they have just there's just a bit of softness to both of their faces even not in the de-aging scenes right and I think that you know they have leaned on CGI pretty heavily in a lot of the action sequences 
it is a bit of a shame, and I don't know if you had the same experience, but when I went to the cinema, um, there was at least two ads about the new Mission Impossible, and I, it did make me think of Tommy Cruise and the fact that he always does his own stunts, and there's a real um, beautiful kineticism in actual stunts. Uh, you know, maybe that's a bit of a, 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 reduct, a reductive way to say no, it. No, I know exactly what you mean. Live yeah. action versus CGI, and I right. think you can always tell. And I think that, yes, you can you can create a lot of beautiful um, action scenes through really good pacing or um, the performances of the actors themselves and all these things and the music and all of that ties in. But sometimes there is just something that CGI just doesn't quite make real. There's a lot that CGI there can't is. do. And, yeah. And I, I, right from the, you know, the daring escape from the uncanny valley, basically, which yeah. is the opening sequence, I was, I was watching it. And I, I know that, I mean, the technology is pretty competent, I think, to the de-aging, but it's new. So I, it was so distracting. Mm. Every, every time I looked at every time he moved, I was like, that's Did, not how a human face moves. Oh, see, I didn't find it too bad. I've definitely seen worse examples. The thing that stood out to me was his voice. Yeah. He obviously has it's a voice, the voice of, of an 80-year-old man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are as, So things I did really love, though, about The Dial of Destiny is that Harrison's age, and he's uh, 79, 80? Something like that, yeah. yeah. It does play into the the narrative, and yeah. I do acknowledge it. And I actually think they do it in a really um, lovely way. You know, there is a, is an interesting scene when um, Harrison is oh, well in the opening scene. He um, to it's confusing because there's lots of different time periods that are used. But when we see Harrison as a 79 year old archaeologist who's just about to retire, there's a scene in which um, he does take off his shirt. And I thought it's so interesting seeing the aging body on screen. I feel like there's something of the last frontier about that. Yeah. We haven't yet come to terms with aging. We sometimes, aging bodies like Ari Aster use it as a, as a jump scare yeah. for, horror, for horror films, you exactly. know? And there's, there's still so much ageism in cinema. And mm-hmm. I actually really loved that Harrison is there. Yes, it's not the same body he had when he was 40, but it's still like a really strong body. And I loved that they tied that into the narrative. And, and it's about an ageing man, you know, because even for the 70s, I mean, for the 60s when this is set in 1969, the bulk of it, um, it he, was a, he was a throwback. You know, because he's a grave robber. He's, yeah. a, he's a he's a colonial nightmare. <laughs> uh, belongs in a museum is a ridiculous thing to say about something that you found in a grave. Um, but um, you know, the, the film really plays with that really well, and that's Phoebe mm. Waller Bridge's role. Um, really is to act as a springboard for the plot and a way to discuss the character and give him some vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. And that we can we can talk about you know his place in the world, but also have a little. You know, adventure. Still. And she's got a lovely, sexy cheekiness to her as well. I yeah. mean, I think she's perfectly cast. I love her. She to is bits. perfect. I actually had to look it up to see if she had a bit of a hand in the script because I know she's a bit of a script doctor on a few things, like the last James Bond. Mm. Uh, she had a hand in, but I don't think she had anything to do with this. I no, she was, yeah. she was just performing in it. But um, but yeah, it is the, car- the the character is very much written for her. Yeah, kind it, of comedy, and it's a perfect fit. Yeah, like because. Almost all the Indiana Jones films, his sidekick is a family member, I realised recently. He's the first one, you know, well, future wife, um, Karen Allen as Marion. Yeah. Um, and the third well, one is his father. she's his goddaughter. I mean, I suppose that's yeah, kind Yeah, of... well, she's a family member. Yeah, that's oh, what I mean. Oh, sorry, yeah. And the yeah. third one is his father, Sean Connery, and the fourth yeah. one is his son, Sheila Booth, and, the, yeah. and, and now his goddaughter. Yeah. So he's always got a family member to play off um, and the way the family... Um, like are quite irreverent yeah. you know, to you. They yeah, don't yeah. care that you're this, this, this hero, this whip-cracking hero. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, so I think that played really well. But but on the CGI, uh, the, as as you said before, I think the strength of, of the, particularly the 80s ones was always the physicality mm. and that it feels real. Everything's very grounded. Yes. And, and this, I didn't have much of a problem post-de-aging um, didn't have a huge problem with the de-aging. I found it distracting. But I, I felt like all the, the action felt real, yeah, mostly. Yeah, yeah, Except some obviously some bits towards the end, which it couldn't possibly be real, but that's fine. <laughs> well, I was, I was sort of um, – often what happens with these big blockbusters is that they lose steam in the kind of third act. And I actually feel like – and I, it is a long film. I, I didn't feel like that way. I actually found uh, there's some great little jump scares. There's some good amount of tension – I was genuinely entertained. Yeah, I was with it the whole way through. Yeah. And I think Indiana Jones is such a specific thing. Like th- there's a whole lot of crawling through caves, solving puzzles 
the snakes and the spiders. It goes into that. You know, it's great. It's all yeah. there. And I think yeah. you need to be a lot smarter than it looks to pull off the extremely specific set of tropes that is yes. Indiana Jones without it coming off as trite and lazy. And yes. but this isn't anything new. This is nothing new here at all. There's nothing new, but it's yeah. very enjoyable. Yeah. And I think it should be noted, um, Harrison Ford actually does seem to want to be in this movie, unlike the last one. And he is, I did just look it up, he is 80 and that makes him actually the oldest age actor to be de-aged in a movie. The last one was Al Pacino, uh, who was 79 when he was de-aged for The Irishman. Oh, right. And so, De Niro. Yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's come a long way since the, the Irishman de-aging. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes very silly looking. Yeah, and I hope that that conversation around the AI doesn't take away from it because I actually yeah. feel like this is a really strong film and it is largely down to the actors themselves and the script and the pacing. It couldn't work without Harrison Ford being all in on it. So and true. You can tell, like he's grumpy and he's rude and he's stubborn. And all of which disguises like a deeply passionate person with a lot of life to give. And that's exactly how I imagine Harrison Ford to be. Yeah. So this is the perfect role for him, Yeah. I feel. Well, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is playing at basically every major cinema all around the country. Uh, so I reckon you should check it out. Uh, it is now time for our final review of the night. Here it is. We are concerned with the leak. Insider threat. This is my partner, what partner? Wally Taylor. Hey, how are you? We have a search warrant for your house. Oh my goodness, okay. Would you like to see it? Yes, please. 125 pounds, you guys. Flatter me. Sorry, I have a sense of humor. I was on your driver's license. That's right. Well, I lied. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> In 2017, a swarm of FBI agents arrive at the home of reality winner, a young translator and Air Force veteran. She wants to put her shopping away and make sure her cat doesn't escape, and they have a search warrant and reason to believe that she's mishandled classified material that goes all the way to the heart of American democracy. <laughs> uh, playwright and director Tina Sattler here has turned her own play, Is This a Room, into reality, a very, very real political thriller based on the actual verbatim transcript of the FBI interview um, of Reality Winner starring Sydney Sweeney. Uh, and it's, it's quite something, I think. Do you? Yeah. I think the fact that um, I heard that Sata came across... This, she came across the case firstly and she was like, why is there not more people talking about this? And then she read the transcript, which, of course, all of these things are publicly available. Mm. So she reads through it and is just so captivated by Reality Winner as a character. Um, and the name alone, yeah. how wild. I When I first heard little rumours and, and whisperings about this film, I was so confused. I was like, oh, she's a reality TV show winner? Yeah. Uh, no, or just you think this is made up? <laughs> Because nobody's called yes. that. But I mean, that's yeah. that's that's one of the things about a you know when you, when you go into use actual reality, so to speak, things you, you there find things a reality. There. <laughs> there are things in there that that can't be uh, made up. For no, fear of looking absurd. Um, and I love the reality that. Okay, reality, right. the character. I, no, I love film. I love the um, the realism, mm. shall I say? Um, because this is performances based on the verbatim transcript. Um, of the FBI interview, uh, meaning there are coughs all through it. There stutters. Are stutters. There are people saying strange little asides that don't quite work. And also, also just like half said sentences. And I was like, half, oh, yeah, yeah that's exactly what we do. Exactly what we're doing right now. <laughs> you wouldn't put it in a script because it doesn't sound good. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it does. It really does. It makes it feel so real. I love the, the cross talk and the small talk and the awkward silences. I mean, I do a lot of interviewing. Um, when I'm writing things um, and then there's, you know, you, you listen back to the transcript and I, I really like listening to them sometimes that there's um, some really uh, interesting uh, reality to them. This word just keeps coming up. Um, there's a certain urgency and danger, you know, mm. and this is just a long, this is a, a single conversation Yes. that becomes an entire film and it plays like a political thriller, even though it's, this is just exactly what happened. Well, all of that patter of conversation, all of those stutters and false starts, 
It's interesting because, uh, at least for the interrogators, it seems like something of an act. Mm. Like they are talking to this young woman. She was only 24, 25, I think, when she was being interviewed. Um, interrogated, sorry. I keep saying interviewed. But she's being – it comes across almost harmless at the start. Yeah. And then it starts to sharpen. And it's really interesting how the conversation really flits from – you know, inane questions about the how much she can bench, uh, which mm. we can talk about that in a second. But like, um, you know, and, go, and then it goes to something very a precise question, and suddenly the mannerisms, the stuttering, the all of that kind of seems to be taken away, and it's a very precise question that's being posed and to reality. Exa- and it's so subtle the mm. way that that happens because I feel like if you scripted this. There'd be some yelling, yes. and there'd be it'd be very overly dramatised. But instead, it's this kind of cat and mouse, you know, because yes. she's performing as well. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. the way that it comes out is just so real, and it feels so mundane. Yes, and actually, you used a word before that I thought perfectly captures it: absurd. There is an absurdity to these conversations and the situation where she's about to be, you know, potentially sent to prison for a very long time and yet the conversations around CrossFit, around her cat being very fat, there's yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of absurdity. It's almost laughable. It is, an, it is obviously a real transcript. There's something else that is happening just under the surface, and I think we should say some words about Tina Satter herself as a filmmaker. Um, it is this, her first film. She comes from a stage background. A lot of her stories typically focus on young women, so it's not that surprising that reality winner has uh, struck her, her attention. Um, there is some uh, almost like creepiness, I found with some of the FBI investigators at the start, I don't know if it's something that because I, as a woman, have experienced that sometimes with interactions with police. Maybe I was hyper aware of that in the interactions. What did you think about that, Will? Um, Yeah, well, it's interesting because she's an Air Force veteran. Yes. um, And she clearly has some, you know, she has a... Not maybe not a trust, a natural trust for the authorities, but she's just like, I'm going to make this, she says, I'm going to make this yeah. as easy as possible. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not going to be weird about this. Mm. Um, but it comes through in insidious small ways. Mm. And also the way that there are two men who approach her at the beginning and then suddenly there's a third who mm. is known only as unknown male because their yes. names weren't, because who <laughs> knows who all these people were. And then suddenly there's about a dozen. Yes. And they're all... Most all men, and they're yeah, there's a woman at the end. Yes, yes, there's a woman at the end, but I think everybody in the house is a man. And there's a moment in which they, she can only hear them inside her house, mm. and they start laughing, and mm. it's never clear what they're laughing at. I don't know. There's something about that invasion of space. I know that they have a warrant that this that's within that context, but there is just something creepy, and um, there's also this posturing that goes on where they're talking about how, you know, stupid sports injuries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which seems like this super mask moment, at, which is which she's also kind of participating in. She is in a very mm. masculine kind of space. She's no uh, doubt had to do that, yeah. you know, in yeah. the Air Force um, or working in like NSA cleared sort of environments mm. and also um, as it reveals working in a, in, a, in a workplace where Fox News is constantly on the television around mm. her. So I'm sure she's had some masculine, um, you oh. know, she, Without a doubt, a, a few <laughs> uh, uh, significant training in how to deal with yeah. uh, men like this. Um, but but it's ne- it's not aggressive though, is it? They're, they're not. It's it's kind of this weird dance. I think mm. I think that it has an undercurrent of it being a bit distasteful. But yeah, you're right. There's a it's a real push and pull yeah. of um, vulnerability and yeah. tenderness to her, believing her innocence, but then also suddenly coming in really harshly on her. It's, there's there's an yeah. undercurrent, like you say, an undercurrent of, of, of discomfort, but you couldn't point to anything specific. No. That's why you couldn't, if you wrote this, if you made it up, you would put in all kinds of nonsense. Yes. Right? But this is just so real. And I don't. it's not the entire transcript because I think the transcript itself is longer. Uh, the, the interview was longer and at some point at 60 minutes into the film it says it's 87 minutes into the recording so they cut something i don't know yeah. probably silence 
probably arming yeah. and ahhing. Well, talking of what's cut, there's also several moments in the film in which um, things are redacted and they, they present that, of course, it's been redacted in the transcript. Mm. But we see that visually on screen. We see that orally communicated through the film. So the, it's really interesting how Sada plays around with this idea of a document, using mm. a document in order to create a film. Mm. Um, just as a sort of a, a film approach, it's really interesting. I found sometimes at the start her constantly referring back to the real case. So sometimes there'll be images of the real reality winner's Instagram page. Sometimes mm. I found that a bit jarring. I kind of wonder whether I would have preferred the film just to stay with Sydney Sweeney mm. as as reality and not be referred back constantly to the original yeah. source. It's interesting because it sits right in between being a, a, a drama and a documentary. Mm. Um, and maybe if if the um, the ratio of those things was different, it would be a documentary with reenactments in it. Mm. Like um, the guy who made American Animals. I can't remember what the, yes. the director's name is, if you know who I'm talking yes, about, what film, films I'm talking be... about. Yes, I know the film. Um, it... it uh, yeah, it, it really never lets you forget that this is a real thing. Mm. Um, one thing I want to ask you about is: do you do you feel that some of the visual stuff, the special effects that come in, uh, you know, the flashy kind of um, digital clipping and artifacty stuff that goes on, do you think that was a bit heavy-handed, a bit much? Or? I, I do. I, I think that it did distract a little bit, and I, I do. What's interesting is that we are. This is a film about. History, but it is the very recent history. This is, of course, talking about the um, Russian. Um, how would you call Election it? Election interference. Yeah, yeah, basically. So we are so familiar with Trump. Reality as a character is fascinating because she is, she has several guns. She works in the air force. She's used to be in the air force. Uh, she's part of that scene. Mm. She also obviously had something made her decide to share this document. Mm-hmm. So. What is going on there? And she's kind of fascinating because people were like, oh, I, the, even the, in, the interrogators are saying, I can't understand why she would do this. But I think there's something to the fact that the Trump administration and Trump's election did really splinter Absolutely. people in, in, in ways we couldn't have ever imagined. As the FBI agent said, every time you turn the news, you get pissed off. Yeah. And that doesn't mean, you know, that, that you could, whatever side of politics you are, yeah. if you're even slightly engaged, that's, that was what it was like. And it was only six years ago that this is set, but it still feels... Yeah. I mean, that, that's a long time in politics, but it still feels extremely fresh. But, um, yeah, it's... it's um, the, the, you, you just had no idea at the time where things were going to go, so there's a real sense of urgency. So I can see why she'd want to... And this information's clearly in the public interest. That's her motivation. Absolutely. And if you'd like to check out Reality, it is currently in cinemas. Uh, you can, of course, listen back via the Triple R website or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. Um, we'll, um, we covered three new releases. I feel like check them all out. They're all well worth um, a listen and a watch. <laughs> Thank you very much, Flick, for Lovely having me on the show again. My pleasure. Stay tuned because local and or general is up next. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.